are taking a break from our sermon series through the Acts of the Apostles. This morning we are in Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, his second letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 17. Before we turn to God's word, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, without your Spirit, who first breathed out this, your word, we are not able to hear your word and obey it. So we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now as we read your word and seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. Give us ears to hear hearts to believe, minds to understand, and wills to obey this morning. For we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 through 17, hear the word of our Lord. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. It was 504 years ago today that Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, posted his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg desiring to spur theological debate about what he saw as abuses of the church's sale of indulgences. The church was, in his opinion, seeking to sell salvation. As we know, what resulted from the posting of these 95 theses was not simply a theological debate, but the beginning of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And at the center of this Reformation was the doctrine of justification with Martin Luther and the other Reformers arguing that justification, being declared righteous in the sight of God, came by God's grace alone through faith alone. Martin Luther himself claimed that the doctrine of justification by grace Faith alone is the article with and by which the church stands, without which it falls. He also said this, this doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, 
preserves and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Reformer John Calvin said that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, is the principal article of the Christian religion. So that each one may take greater pains and care to know it. For if we do not know what God's will is towards us, we have no foundation on which to establish our salvation or build us up in piety in fear of God. Dearly beloved, these are bold claims. But they were made because the reformers understood that the doctrine of justification addresses what R.C. Sproul has called the deepest existential problem a human being can ever face. And that is, how can a sinner, an unjust person, ever withstand the judgment of a holy and just God? If the Lord should mark iniquities... Who could stand? This is a question that the psalmist asks in Psalm 130. Indeed, we with the reformers must be committed to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and we must reject any claims that we somehow contribute something other than our sin to our salvation. There is no other way that we are saved, for this is what the Bible teaches. As the Apostle Paul lays out in places like Romans 3, but now, Paul states, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over our former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God reveals through his word that it is in the cross of Jesus Christ that God's wrath and love meet his justice and mercy kiss. And praise be to God. He has offered up his own beloved son, Jesus Christ, as an atonement for our sins. Jesus, who was without sin, has bore our sins in his body on the tree. He has taken the penalty of our sin as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ, in his perfect righteousness, in his atoning death for our sins, in his resurrection from the dead, that we are justified, that we are washed clean of our sin, clothed, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and set at peace with God. But Paul insists that even faith, 
Even faith is a gift of God. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, he writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. What God's word asserts and affirms again and again is that God is sovereign over salvation. From beginning to end, it is a work of the Lord. Praise be to God. And we find this here in our passage in 2 Thessalonians where Paul states that it is God who has chosen these believers in Thessalonica for salvation. He states in verse 13, God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Now the word firstfruits is a word referring to the first part of the harvest which was dedicated as sacred to God. So Paul might be alluding to those he was writing to in Thessalonica being the first converts of many more who would be saved there. And this would have certainly been an encouragement to the believers there that despite persecution, despite hardship, God would bring more to faith in their city. But rather than first fruits, other versions read... From the beginning, and there's strong evidence that this is what Paul intends here. We see the very same thing proclaimed in Ephesians 1, where Paul tells us God chose us in Jesus Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. From before the world was ever created, God had chosen a people unto himself for salvation. God chose to deliver his people from the ravages and consequences of sin, not based on anything good that he foresaw in his elect, but solely out of his love. And we see here in 2 Thessalonians that Paul refers to those he's writing to as the beloved by the Lord. We need to understand that the love of God is tied explicitly to the love expressed in the redemptive death of Jesus Christ. We see this in places like Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. So God loved his people before he ever created them and this love gets expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ. He claims them by his love in the death of his beloved son. 
So even though this isn't mentioned here, we shouldn't miss the connection. They are chosen by God because of God's great love for them, which has saved them by the sacrificial death of Jesus. But regardless of how this verse in 2 Thessalonians 2 is translated at this point, it is without doubt communicating the doctrine of election. And Paul continues here in 2 Thessalonians, telling us how these chosen people came to saving faith, having been called, as he says in verse 14, through our gospel. They heard the gospel proclaimed and responded to the truth of God's word. This is the ordained means by which God brings his chosen people to salvation. This is what we call the doctrine of effectual calling. As the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, at the right time, appointed by him, God effectually calls all those and only those whom he has predestined to life. He calls them by his word and spirit out of their natural state of sin and death into the grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually with a saving understanding of the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills by, and by his almighty power leads them to what is good. And so he effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. But they come to Jesus voluntarily, having been made willing by God's grace. Consider this for a moment. God was active in and through the apostolic preaching of the gospel, calling his chosen people to himself. He was using the proclamation of the gospel through the mouths of these men to awaken dead hearts and unstop deaf ears. If we think about it, it is remarkable. And it remains remarkable today that God continues to use this as the means by which he seeks and saves the lost. We should also note that what Paul is saying here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is meant to provide a contrast to those Paul has just been speaking of in the preceding verses. Those who had been deceived by the lawless one, Satan, and were perishing. Paul says that these have refused to love the truth and so be saved. The recipients of his letter, on the other hand, had been chosen and called by God and had placed faith in Jesus Christ and had been saved. They had responded to God's grace in faith. But even while we note the human response to the gospel message, we again need to be clear that God's election of his people is not based on anything they had done or would do, but solely based on his sovereign choice. For even the human response to the gospel, repenting of sin and placing faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is enabled by God. Notice here how Paul doesn't discount the human response. He mentions their belief in the truth of the gospel in verse 13, but only after he makes clear that God's saving grace has been made effective for them through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. 
God pours out his Holy Spirit on his chosen people that they might be brought from death to life, that they might be freed from sin, reborn in the Spirit, transformed by the Spirit who works in them to empower them to place faith in Jesus Christ and to put to death their old life and to live into new life in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul gives thanks to God for those to whom he is writing. He gives thanks to God for his sovereign grace, his loving kindness that has redeemed these believers in Thessalonica who had heard and believed the truth of the gospel. Paul has full confidence in God's eternal purposes for them. He knows that despite their present situation of tribulation, that God is powerfully at work in their lives. The God who chose them, who called them, who saved them, who was at work in them in the power of the Spirit, who would undoubtedly bring them safely home to his eternal kingdom. And we see this in the passage, don't we? We not only see the doctrines of election, of effectual call, of salvation here, we also see the goal of salvation. Paul says that God called them through our gospel so that they might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8.30, And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he has called, he also justified. And those whom he has justified, he also glorified. Paul lays it all out for us, right? The Lord is faithful to strengthen and protect his chosen people. The purpose of his call is that his people will share the glory of Jesus Christ. The very same glory which will be seen at Christ's coming again is the glory by which God's people themselves will be glorified. Now that is something to place our hope in. Therefore, what Paul does in just two verses here is to take us from eternity past to eternity future. From before the foundation of the world, the beginning to glory, helping us to see that God at every point is working out his sovereign plan, which includes our election, our calling, our salvation, our sanctification, and ultimately our glorification. The God who chooses and calls is also the God who establishes and brings to glory. Therefore, Therefore, we find eternal stability in the purposes of God. Dearly beloved, this is exactly what the reformers of the Protestant Reformation sought to recover for the church. It is what had been passed down through the apostles and preserved in the pages of Scripture. This message that Paul sent to the Thessalonians was meant to comfort them. It was a a comfort to them that they were to find all of their peace in God's sovereign saving grace. There was no need to fear in the face of difficulty and danger. Their salvation wasn't in any way unstable. It originated with God in his divine election. It was grounded in God alone who provided his son Jesus Christ by whom we are saved and the Holy Spirit who applies the work of Christ to our lives and is the guarantee of our hope to which our salvation looks. It's exactly what 
the reformers wanted for believers by returning them to the apostolic message. They wanted them to have a strong assurance of their salvation, a security based on God's great love demonstrated in his sovereign purposes in Jesus Christ. And how were they to remind themselves of this and so to live in faithful obedience? Well, look at what the Apostle Paul does in verse 15. He moves us from confident thanksgiving to earnest exhortation. He exhorts them, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, neither, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, don't let the word translated here as traditions throw you. The word the Apostle Paul uses here is a Greek word for the teachings. He is referring to the truth that having been received must be faithfully handed on. What is this truth? It is the teaching of the apostles, which Paul says in many places in his letters that he is passing on to these churches and individuals to whom he is writing. And the teaching of the apostles is what has been taught to them directly by Christ and is that which have been faithfully recorded and preserved for us in the Bible. This is the apostolic traditions to which Paul speaks. And note here that Paul is making a clear statement that the teaching of the apostles carries authority. It's the basis on his instruction to the church to stand firm in it and to hold tightly to it. And this is the case because he understood the teaching of the apostles to be God's inspired word. And we see this in Paul's writings where he contends that the message he proclaims is not from men, but from God. And as we consider the impact and implications of the Protestant Reformation this day, we need to understand that as much as the Reformers pushed justification by grace alone through faith alone, as much as they exalted God as the one who is sovereign over all of his creation and who is sovereign over our salvation, as much as they proclaimed this truth as a comfort to believers, as a truth by which we can have assurance of our salvation, behind and underneath all of this was a recognition of the supreme authority of Scripture. For it is in Scripture that one finds these doctrines of election and salvation and sanctification and glorification. It was from his reading of Scripture that Martin Luther became convinced of the need for reform in the church. And the reformers insisted that Scripture alone was our supreme and final authority for life and faith. That isn't to say that there aren't other authorities like church councils church councils that we should respect and obey. But there is no authority above Scripture because Scripture alone is from God. It is God-breathed, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. Every other authority should be tested against the authority of Scripture because every other authority is from man, meaning every other authority is fallible and errant. It can and it does err. But Scripture is from God. And since God, who is perfect, spoke it, it cannot and it does not err. 
This is why we profess scripture to be infallible and inerrant. And this is why God's word is our supreme and final authority for matters of faith. It is the supreme source of the truth about God, containing God's special revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. It is where we find the truth about ourselves as those who are lost and ruined by sin, desperately in need of salvation, but without hope outside of God's grace. And it's where we find our Christian hope, the promises of God to those who believe. It's where we find also what God calls us to is his people created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if we stray from scripture, then we stray from faith and the assurance of our faith. We stray from our Christian hope and we stray from faithful obedience. This is why Martin Luther refused at the Diet of Worms to recant what he had written about the doctrine of justification. He boldly declared, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture, I will not recant. My conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Dearly beloved, he understood that not only that only God's word had the right to bind the conscience because, again, Scripture is the supreme authority. This is also why the Reformers sought desperately to get Scripture back into the hands of believers. So Martin Luther worked feverishly to get the Bible translated into German and printed and distributed widely. He understood the power of believers being able to read Scripture for themselves that they might be able to stand firmly on its truth. And as we look at these verses in 2 Thessalonians 2 this morning, we need to see the picture that Paul paints here by his language of standing firm and holding on to the apostolic teaching we have preserved for us in Scripture. The image is that of a gale. Now, this is something that we should be able to relate to here in Louisiana, where we have experienced a hurricane or two, several, in fact, in only the past few years. So we should be able to get what Paul is communicating here. He's warning that the church is in danger of being swept off their feet and being wrenched from their handhold. In the face of hurricane-force winds of the world, he instructs the church community to plant their feet firmly on solid ground and to cling to something solid and secure, holding on for dear life. Standing firmly and holding tightly on to the word of God is what would keep the church in Thessalonica secure and stable in the face of false teaching and persecution. Even as the Lord was establishing them, they were to be constant in their faithfulness before the Lord. And their commitment to stand firm and hold fast to God's word was key to this. And what an appropriate thing for us to remember on this Reformation Day 2021. As we celebrate the Reformers' push to return to the truth of God's word and their dependence on God's word as a supreme authority. The question for us this morning is, how do we stand firmly and hold fast to God's word today? What does it mean for us in America in 2021? It wasn't only the early church to which Paul spoke that faced challenges, nor have the challenges been eliminated by the Protestant Reformation. Every generation is faced with challenges to abandon God's word. Every generation must therefore recommit itself 
to God's word. And despite the work of the reformers, there has been false teaching that has crept into the church through the years since and has been, in some cases, widely accepted in the church in America. There has also been increasing pressure from outside the church, from surrounding culture, to abandon God's word as truth. And even as we don't experience persecution to a degree that is even remotely resembling what the early church experienced, more and more Christians in our culture are facing social ostracism and slander on account of their faith. So briefly, I just want to mention two things that we need to stand firm and hold fast to God's word. One of these is negative and one of these is positive. So first, from a negative perspective, We must not be shaken by theological novelty, but must firmly reject it. We must not be shaken by theological novelty, but must firmly reject it. The believers in Thessalonica were up against a strong delusion that threatened to shake them and had to be rejected. This is the context of what the Apostle Paul writes here in chapter 2. It's also the context of the Reformation, although it was the reformers who were charged with innovation. In fact, it was the medieval church's innovative distortions of the Christian faith and worship that required a recovery of apostolic Christianity. Rome had pretended to be always the same, but it had accumulated a host of doctrines and practices that were unknown to the ancient church, much less to the New Testament. The reformers then were attempting to return the church to true apostolic teaching. And we too are up against some strong delusions. We too must be careful not to allow the church to return to a corrupted state like the one that the reformers found themselves in, where the truth of God's word had been subverted. For us, theological novelty might come in the form of ill-intentioned individuals, who wish to add to God's word or do away with what they find repulsive in God's word, whether that be a doctrine like the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection of Jesus that is found to be irrational according to human reason, or whether that be aspects of God's law that are decided to be outdated because they do not fit today's norms. And sometimes these are very easy to identify. There's no shortage of books declaring to have long lost stories about Jesus that either has been recently discovered or that the church supposedly tried to hide because it gave a view of Jesus that the church didn't wish to have exposed. These are nonsense. They're nonsense. They need to be rejected. Also easily identifiable are those declaring essential truths of Christianity unimportant while asserting that we should find allegorical meaning in the story of Jesus. Like, Jesus was simply a good teacher who wanted all of us to be kind to one another and live our best life now, but never intended for us to follow him as Savior and Lord. Again, this is nonsense that should be flatly rejected. But sometimes these theological novelties are presented with a great deal of biblical evidence. And I use the term evidence loosely because the peddlers of these novelties, what they do is work to create carefully crafted arguments, which might, for instance, be filled with Greek and Hebrew word studies for passages which they dislike the plain meaning of. And these word studies might, for instance, 
reveal that a certain word or phrase really was not an eternal truth of God, but it was somehow bound to a specific time and culture and can therefore be disregarded as a teaching that guides our ethics. These novelties are also nonsense, but their air of scholarship makes them seem more difficult to refute. And many who wish to justify sins that are viewed as acceptable in the world around us have been misled by these lies. This makes it all the more important for these novelties to be identified as what they are and firmly rejected. Theological novelty can also come in the form of what seems to be a well-meaning, in the form of what seems to be well-meaning scholars who focus on one aspect of Scripture, but to the exclusion of the whole of Scripture or who believe they have uncovered some ancient understanding of how a particular passage or theme in Scripture is to be read. For instance, in pretty recent history, some have argued that the Reformers misinterpreted Paul and were thus wrong in their doctrines of grace. We need to remember that not all who teach theological novelties are encouraging licentiousness. Some are encouraging new forms of legalism. And both of these things were going on in the early church and have continued throughout history. Legalism and licentiousness must both be rejected. But it's important that we have a strong grasp of the whole of God's word to ensure that we don't fall prey to theological novelty. For typically, every theological novelty quickly falls apart when held against the full counsel of God's word. Second, and very briefly, from a positive perspective, we need to constantly submit ourselves to the authority of God's word and thus be continuously reformed according to God's word. A motto that was birthed from the Reformation is reformed, always being reformed according to the word of God. Now, this is a phrase that's been greatly misused by some who have twisted it to mean that the church should always be changing and innovating to keep up with a changing world. So usually this means the church should be molding itself according to the ways of the world. But what the phrase actually is getting at is that we, in submission to Scripture, should be always being brought into greater conformity with God's Word and its agenda rather than seeking after our own desires. So, for instance, as we read through the study of the book of Acts, we should seek to allow God and the power of his Holy Spirit to reveal to us ways in which our church and our individual lives need to be brought into greater conformity with the biblical principles laid out for the church and for believers from the very beginning. And we might discover in our study of Scripture that other Ideas from the outside world might just have crept into the church along the way. These might be from what was considered human wisdom or best business practices, and they might seemingly work well out in the world. But if they are not in accordance with God's word, then they are keeping us from being the people and the church God intends for us to be. And they need to be repented of as we bring our lives into conformity with what God says in his word as right and good. And when we do this, we are standing firm and holding fast to God's word. 
declaring God's word to be trustworthy and unchanging even as the world around us constantly shifts beneath our feet. Brothers and sisters, if we do not commit ourselves to this, if we do not teach future generations to do the same, false teaching will creep in and will lead us astray. The outside world will shake us from our hope. We will abandon faithful obedience to our Lord and Savior who gave his life that we might live in the joy and peace and freedom of our salvation. So my prayer on this Reformation Day 2021 is that we will stand firmly and hold tightly to the truth of God's word. As Paul urged the Thessalonians to do and as the reformers modeled for us. And to God be all the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love whereby you took on flesh and came and dwelt among us and revealed yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect life, for his substitutionary death, for his resurrection from the dead and for his ascension into heaven. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit by whom we are brought to saving faith and washed clean of our sins. And we thank you that you have given us your word, that we might know these truths. We thank you for preserving it through the generations, that we might know your sovereign purposes and your will for us. Help us, by the power of your spirit, to stand firm and to hold fast to your word. Help us to submit our lives to its truth and be transformed by it. For I pray this for the sake of your glory and the expanse of your kingdom. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father.